Welcome to episode 362 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a grand conversation with resident punk, rock and roll historian, and co-author of Please Kill Me, the Uncensored Oral History of Punk, Legs McNeil. We also have an EWSA titled Conformity, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise, shares an essay titled The Myth of Icarus, and we have a poem called Paste. All of this, of course, as is always the case, will be imbued and infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 362 of Troubadours and Tours. Conformity. Get off my grass, you punk. Who do you think you are peddling that junk? Questioning authority with nasty inquiries, suggesting that we don't take into account what is best for us and the rest. 
Just follow our lead and you will certainly succeed in the eyes of the man and in the ways dictated through nature by Almighty God. Don't imply that I am a fraud, you stinking punk. Why don't you work and dress and finesse like the Wall Street hunks and like those classy ladies wearing the power skirts and button-down dress shirts and the classy men in their Brooks Brother boxer briefs fantasizing about silk sheets and lace panties while you go commando and your females trade in public toilets their cotton underpants. At a glance, you would think we are the same. But you don't get the game. You deep down know we time and time again will put you to shame. We are manning all of the towers of power, and you cannot accept it. You just complain. Our patriarchy is the way. You will die young in your personal rebellion as you delude yourself to believe that you are a bad mofo of a hellion. Punks have no place in our race toward success. You are all a mess. But perhaps I digress. Follow us. Get on the bus. Have faith and trust. Everything will be okay once you embrace our well-mannered conformity. Otherwise, please kill me. When I say I'm in love, you best believe I'm in love, L-U-V. Looking for a kiss Well, won't you tell me why those kids are moving so slow Is it that they just don't have a place to go When the day starts breaking, the sun is gonna shine It's hard to sleep if I've been trying And all the old ladies there are on their way to church To go to church, I bet it will not be alone Looking for a kiss When everyone's going to your house They shoot up in your room 
Looking for a kiss Mr. McNeil, is that you? Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, we have on Troubadours and Rock On Tours this go-around, Roderick Legs McNeil. Let's give a little background information before we get into a nice conversation. Uh, Legs McNeil is the co-author of The Other Hollywood, the uncensored oral history of the porn film industry. He was the former resident punk at Punk Magazine, a senior editor at Spin, and regularly contributes to Vice Online. And, of course, Mr. McNeil co-authored with Jillian McCain, Please Kill Me, The Uncensored Oral History of Punk, a classic work credited with reinvigorating the oral history genre. Mr. McNeil and Ms. McCain are presently working on another work of uncensored oral history that is a prequel to Please Kill Me, it focuses on the 1960s and is titled 69. Tuberos and Rock on Tours is happy to have on the show Roderick Legs McNeil. Thank you, sir, for taking time out. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm very excited. And uh, before we get into our discussion about the art and craft of constructing oral an oral history, let's uh, get a little background information to set the, the tone for for the listeners, you know, how about telling us about your boyhood days in Connecticut and how you ended up in the Bowery? Um, I was born in 1956. My dad died about two months after my mom worked. I had an older brother and an older sister, and I um, was born with one leg two inches longer than the other, and um, I had I have a severe very severe case of dyslexia so I didn't do well in school and I drank I started drinking when I was 12 or 13 and and I uh, didn't like Connecticut at all and um, had met up in Connecticut with a guy named John Holmstrom who wanted to be a cartoonist he was an artist and um, uh, I when I moved to New York in 1974 it was in with him and behind the uh, School of Visual Arts on 24th Street so that's kind of how it started and then it being i think uh punk magazine right how did that start well we uh, we we had made this really uh, i directed this really bad movie called the unthinkables about um uh, gangsters who couldn't do anything right and it was silent film black and white and um that's when Jed Dunn and John and I really got together and we wanted to do something, you know, um, and we, John had brought, uh, we were, we were spending the summer in Connecticut and John brought this album up that he learned from Lester Bangs at cream magazine, the dictators go girl crazy, which basically kind of, uh, 
told our story in music, and it was great. It was a great album, and um, we really, you know, they were in the inside sleeve jacket. They were in black leather jackets sitting around a white castle, and we thought, oh, that's us, that's us. And um, we just we just loved it. And uh, we were driving. John said he wanted to start a magazine about c- comics and rock and roll. And um, he said, uh, I want to call it Teenage News. And I said, that's a stupid name. Why don't we call it punk? And um, they all started laughing. They thought that was a great idea. And John said, I'll be the editor. And Jed said, I'll be the publisher. And they looked at me and they said, what are you going to do? And John said, oh, you can be the resident punk. Ha, ha. You know, he was hysterically laughing. So that's kind of how it started. And, but uh, we had not seen the remote. We didn't even know CBG. I think John knew that CBGBs existed, but I, I certainly didn't. And I, I also didn't read rock and roll magazines, you know. I, did, I couldn't afford them. <laughs> like, like Cream, for example, that you mentioned. Yeah. John read them. John, John read all the rock mags. Well, you know the term punk. How did you come up with that? I mean, some people say well, it, was, it wasn't. It wasn't that hard. It was, you know, what everybody had called me all my life. You know, you are. You're a punk. You know, <laughs> you know. And also, they used it on, tell you know, all the crime shows. You know, when they finally caught the bad guy in the end, they couldn't say, "You motherfucker." FCC legs. FCC legs. Or whatever they said. You know, they said, you know. You're a punk. You're a dirty punk, you know? <laughs> I got it, yeah. Now, when you're talking about punk magazine, you know, we're discussing the uh, the art and craft of, of uh, oral history. Would you say punk magazine was an oral history of the punk scene as it was developing? Yeah, you could say, yeah, you could say kind of. A, a punk magazine was kind of important because it showed us that we could actually do something and publish. You know, John was... John was working his ass off and really um, was, you know, the, the the brilliant genius behind Punk Magazine. I was just kind of uh, following along and doing what I could, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I would, we, you know, Punk Magazine was a great education, I must say. Well, you One of the big uh, uh, interviews, I guess the first uh, interview was with uh, Lou Reed, right? I think. Yes, yeah. And uh, that was the first night we went to CBGB's. We saw the Ramones. And Lou was sitting there, you know. And I said, hey, John, there's that guy you're always playing. Because he was always playing metal machine music, which I thought was awful. And um, so um, we went up to, to Lou and I said, yeah, we're going to interview you, you know. And John said, yeah, we'll even put you on the cover. At which point, Lou looked at John and deadpan, your circulation must be fabulous. <laughs> you know, he was very funny. You know, but, um, you know, we went and we went to the local, he was with Rachel, his uh, transsexual girlfriend. Um, and it was, it was me, Mary Heron, um, who later um, directed uh, a bunch of movies, um, yeah, I know. American Psycho, yeah, yeah, yeah American exactly. Psycho and stuff like that. And um, she thought we were being so amateurish. And and after the interview, um, John was jumping up and down when we got out of the local locale, which was right next to the bottom line. And John was jumping up and down and said, we got Lou Reed for the cover, we got Lou Reed for the cover. And I said, yeah, but did you see that chick he was with? <laughs> and Mary Heron was just horrified by our behavior, you know. 
Well, you guys were and, like 19, weren't you? You're kids. I right? was 19. John was four years older, so so 19 and four is... 23. 23. He was 23, yeah. So. Yeah, we had a pre-conversation, uh, Legs and myself, and I'm, I'm a mathematician, so I felt confident just giving, taking that role and that responsibility and of adding for you. You, you. you could add four and 19? Yeah, pretty impressive. Right? You're, a, you're a genius. <laughs> Thank you, You're sir. a genius. It means man. a lot. It means a lot coming from yeah. you. So you're 19, early 20s. Lou's probably about 10 years older, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Um, and and did you interview him? Uh, well, I guess it was a, it was an ensemble uh, of of you guys talking with him. Is did you do you think that started getting planting a seed in your head about how the narrative, first person narrative, could really be powerful? No, no, it wasn't until I saw what John did with the interview. He, he you know did it in this. Lou was talking about all his favorite cartoonists like Wally Wood and and. Uh, Harvey Kurtzman, or, you know, just different um, cartoonists who had a very distinctive style. And John Drew, you know, um, Lou, talking about these cartoonists in the style of what he was, of the, of the cartoonists he was talking about. So it was very, um, it was very inspiring, the whole. And once, once we saw the first issue of Punk come together, it was... It was so cool, and it was so much fun, you know? Yeah, yeah, and then, you know, that went on for quite some time, and you were firsthand involved in the punk scene. You know, you read the book, of which I have, and I have, it's an amazing book. It's so, you can't put it down. It's so powerful. It's funny. It's it's heartbreaking, and it, it's just, it's compelling. Uh, but you were right there in the thick of things, too, which must have helped, uh, rather than just someone who knew about a certain time period and went in and tried to gather enough information and enough uh, voice uh, to, to create the, 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 the narrative. You were there. Yeah, well, what what was what was nice about doing Please Kill Me was that I could actually call these people up and say, "Hey, can I talk to you?" And they say, "Yeah, sure," you know. So it was it was much easier because people knew me, you know. So I had access, you know, I had access to people who were in the room. Well, and you know. should we fast? I mean, you're talking. We're talking the 1970s into the 80s, and then you start working on this book when. About ninety one, ninety two, I, I, uh, somewhere along there, Didi Didi Ramon had come to me and he had just left the Ramones and he wanted. I, th- I think he left in eighty nine and he, he he wanted me to do a, a book with him. And I was friends with Jillian and Jillian kept saying, "If it's bigger than Didi, it's bigger than Didi," you know. Jillian again. Jillian McCain, yeah. Yeah, Jillian McCain, your co-author. Yes. And she was uh, she's a poet uh, as well as... She was working at St. Mark's Poetry Project. Right. And she does a great imitation because I would... I would, she would... She did Monday, Wednesday, and I think Sunday nights, you know, the, the poetry readings. And she does a great imitation of me coming over. And, and I would always giggle. You know, there'd be these serious poets up there going, you know, I would just start laughing. Because, <laughs> um, you know, most of the poets were not that great, you know. So, um, and she'd say, I come in my leather jacket and it would be squeaking, you know, the leather would be squeaking and, and I'd say, Hey, let's go out for a cigarette. And then I'd never come back. <laughs> <laughs> I guess once a resident punk, always, always a resident punk. And, um, 
were you uh, were you aware of uh, Plimpton and Stein, George Plimpton and, and uh, Oh yeah, yeah. That that was kind of the basis of Joey and I's relationship. We were always talking about how great we were really really influenced by Edie, and we kept saying, why doesn't anyone else do this? This is such a great form, you know? Because you're, it's, it's, there's no, there's no writer offering his opinion, it's just, you know, going from one person who was there in the room when something important was happening, you know? Um, it, it, and, it, and, and if you edit it correctly, it, it, it could be a masterpiece, you know? Now you're referencing Edie, uh, American Girl, Gene Stein and George, George Plimpton. George Plimpton, yes, yeah, yes. Their oral hit, narrative, oral history. Uh, yeah. And they pretty much invented this genre, right? They did. Well, um, Gene Stein had done a book um, before that about Bobby Kennedy and about his assassination. And I think that was kind of the start of her um, her road to, to Edie. You know, I think it was done, done about maybe 10 years before, maybe five years before. and um, So in the 70s? Yeah, yeah. When, when, and I, when did Edie come out? 80, 80, 81? 82, 1982. Okay, okay, yeah. And I think that's what really um, solidified the, the oral history, um, the narrat- what we call the narrative oral history, um, as a genre, you know? And you're... Uh, it was definitely Gene Stein and George Plimpton. So Jillian and I were, you know, really in love with that, and we kept, you know, talking. And we're, in fact, we're still talking about it, you know. Yeah, and your your book uh, came out in '96. Yeah, yeah, and you know, what I, I'm looking. I looked at that essay that you asked me to read a few times. I read it, and and there, you know, certain certain ideas that uh, stuck in my head, like the the idea of uh, the editorial voice coming from how you craft the narrative right it's of its own it's not yours it's not jillian's yes and it's also and it all has has to be based on what actually happened you know you know so it's it's really kind of challenging quite challenging I, I i remember uh you talking about how first you put the chapters together uh, and you have to have a sound structure that was your responsibility, basically. And, and the legitimacy and the themes was uh, more so Jillian's responsibility. Uh, and you, uh, once you get the chapters together, then you have to try to figure out a way to string or connect, or I don't know if, if it's a transitional yes, thing. You're, yes, you're right. Exactly right. Yeah. Explain that to us a little bit. How, how does that, I mean, what are the challenges there? What, what do you mean by, isn't it a well, chronological basically- thing? Basically, I construct, you know, we do a massive amount of interviews. And then, um, as we're doing on 69 right now, uh, we've kind of done most of the interviews. And then I construct it, and then I send it to Jillian, and then we start arguing. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, it's, it's quite good, the arguments we have, you know. Because out of those arguments, you know, you can really get something, you know. I present my case, she presents her case, and... And then we we kind of discuss them, and it's 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 actually very very addictive. <laughs> but the, the, the important thing about an oral history is you only want people who were in the room. You know, I keep saying that in this interview. You want people who were in the room when something happened. You don't want anyone anyone's opinion about anything 
unless the, it has directly to do with them being in the room when something happened, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like like when, when in Please Kill Me, when Stiv Bader's gets a blow FCC legs. On stage. You just want to talk to all the people who were there and watched it. You and know? That, he was with the Dead Boys, is that right? Yes, the Dead Boys, the lead singer of the Dead Boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah they came in from Cleveland. And, uh, yeah. yeah, that was at CBGB's? Yes, that was at CBGB's. You, you know what and I noticed? I think, Go ahead, I'm yeah, sorry. I, I, forget, I, I forget the stories now. It's been a long time. But. Well, it's in the book. We're talking to Legs yeah. McNeil, by the way, if you just tuned in. Uh, one of the um, great American oral uh, history writers, editors, I don't know how to put it. Not a writer, I guess, editors, uh, uh, sculptors. Uh, working on a new project with his uh, lo- longtime partner in crime, Jillian. And uh, Jillian is McCain, her last name, by the way. Uh, we're, yes. we're looking at uh, a new book coming out maybe in time of the, for the 25th anniversary of Please Kill Me, right? I mean, that'll be... Yeah, a, yeah, yeah, probably. And yeah. It's, it's a prequel. The 1960s you're focusing on, but before yes. we get before we get to that, I want to you know the common themes. Uh, big, it's a big, uh, I guess, this need to have good themes, common characters, a thread. I found throughout the book Iggy Pop keep pop, he kept popping up, so to speak. It, it, was that it, it, was that intentional? Did you find him a, such a compelling figure? In, in a, yeah, yeah. Iggy's Iggy's one of the stars, you know, and Iggy kind of. You know, with the Velvets beforehand, um, they kind of were the prequel to Iggy. You know, they they kind of broke all the barriers, and 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 you know, I mean, the Velvets kind of defined what modern music would become. You know, in every genre. You know, goth. You know, country and western. You know, I mean, there's everything in the Velvets. You know, noise. You know, industrial rock. You know, so. And then, and then John Cale and Nico both go to Ann Arbor. You know, John. Well, John Cale produces the first Stooges record, and, and then Nico goes to Ann Arbor and has an affair with Iggy. So you can see the connection there. But Iggy, Iggy, kind of. I mean, Alice Cooper said to me, you know, uh, you know, we were kind of faking it and and, and being showbiz, and Iggy, Iggy was the real thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. He, Which I think Alice would would cop to today, you know. He and and Iggy's still around. It's amazing all the stuff that he's been through. Yeah, I know. Iggy's great. Uh, you you, uh, you talk about Ann Arbor. That's an you know when and Iggy coming up uh, the hard way, just as the Dead Boys. I guess that's part of the punk scene, right? I mean, these these folks are are representative of a certain. A human experience in the world. Even when you go over to England and you're talking about the Sex Pistols or the Clash, even though some of that was manufactured, so those characters they they came up hard, all of them. Well, the great thing about the punk scene was that a bunch of people, whether they were in Australia, England, or the United States, a bunch of people who had nothing created something, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. It is. It you is. And, and, and they created something vital. And great, you know. Do you think the time period in which it uh, it spawned is significant? Yes, yes, because America was just you know desolate, 
you know it was just especially new york city it was the end of white flight everybody you know with money had moved out of new york city and abandoned it you know and and and, and most of the other cities with the exception of los angeles you know and england too you know i mean it was you know we were in the middle of a you know ford told new york city to drop dead you know it was it was really kind of a, a you know, there was a gas shortage. It was it was kind of a bad time. Yeah, and we're talking again the seventies into the eighties. You had disco popping up too. Yeah, and I know the sixties yeah. movement for a lot of punk people, including yourself, I gather, was was getting out of control with the self indulgence and and you know the hippie hugging yes. and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, like most mass movements, they really can't be hip because they get. They just get homogenized as they get bigger and bigger, you know. Uh, you know what I learned from your book as well is is the the sort of uh, trajectory or the uh, the chronology of of glitter to glam to punk, right? Uh, yeah, it was kind of interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, very. Interesting. I didn't know all that. I didn't know all that stuff. The John Vaccaro and um, Charles Ludlam, you know, theater of the ridiculous and and glitter and where it, you know actually came from, you know. Yeah, there's a the, there's a theatrical sort of uh, ancestry to it all. Well, in the in the early '70s and the late '60s, it was much hipper to be in underground theater than it was to be in rock and roll, which I thought was kind of fascinating. You know. Yeah, you know, I had a, a guy on one time. I don't know if you ever heard of him, Peter Schumann, Bread and Puppet Theater in the Village. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and they were radicals. They were out there, yeah. you know, tear the government down was their adage, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but no, what was cool about them is once they started getting too popular, they moved to Vermont. They said this is not, <laughs> you know, this is not cool anymore. Yeah. Going yeah. along with your mass movement uh, uh, insight. Yeah. Now, um, so. We get. I wanted to ask you after punk. Would you say uh, then came grunge? And the grunge came. Well, the eighties came along, and the eighties was a horrible time. For, I was. That's when I was working at Spin, and we were putting Madonna on the cover and Stink, and and Bon Jovi. You know, it was a horrible time for music. You know, I love Spin magazine, though. My compliments, sir. I, I preferred it to Rolling Stone. I used to read it all the time. It was, Spin was an anomaly. Yeah. Spin, it, it, it was okay, but it wasn't great, you know? Now, so you didn't have, it wasn't your most uh, special, fun job ever? No. <laughs> no, God, no. It wasn't Spin was punk. horrible. <laughs> Spin was the worst. Um, so let me ask another question about... Uh, um, I guess some of your experiences uh, that fed into the oral history of uh, "Please Kill Me." Uh, you, you know, some of the the people that you 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 hung out with, uh, Lou Reed, as you mentioned. How about the New York Dolls or Patti Smith, the Ramones? Of course, we didn't even talk about the Ramones. Talking about punk and not talking about the Ramones is that. What kind of people were these folks? Really interesting. Really smart. You know, not 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 classically smart, but but um or 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 you know university smart but um they were doing something that they had to do you know it was it was they were great people and they were funny they were fun they were it was it was a fun time you know 
you know, that 75 to 80 was a great, great, great time, you know. What about some of the folks like, uh, you know, the side characters in a way? You, know, you talk about the importance um, of putting together an oral history to, to have included those folks that aren't up front, that, you know, but they're part of the scene. People like, uh, because they give you a lot of times the, the greatest insight. They're more open. Uh, people like Sable Starr or Lee Black Childers, Hilly Crystal, uh, Danny yeah. Fields. Tell me about those folks. They Well, you know, I mean, when... When Danny Fields and Lisa Robinson walked into CBGB's, you know, you stood up a little straighter, you know, you, you sobered up a little bit because, um, you know, you, like I worked for Lisa Robinson doing the, the uh, writing stories for Hip Parader. So, you know, you didn't want to get fired. You didn't want to insult them, you know, you know, and once they left, you could go back to being, you know, a drunken fool, you know, <laughs> it was fun. But Danny, Danny was always there, you know, chewing gum. You know, looking at you, going, I see you. Yeah, I see what you're doing. Danny was great, though. You know, Danny's still great. Yeah, I saw a documentary recently uh, on, on Netflix, and he, he seemed pretty cool. He seems pretty, pretty. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I guess wise and kind, and, and he has a good sense of humor and very good taste. Yeah, of course, of course, and very, very, very excellent. You know, Danny was Danny. You know, you know he. Yeah, that's why the book was dedicated to Danny Fields, because I was thinking, we were talking at the end of the book, Jillian and I, and I said, you know, if it wasn't for Danny, maybe a lot of this music would not have made it, you know, onto record, you know, because Danny really fought for Iggy and Nico and, you know, all these great bands, and later the Ramones, you know, I mean... You kind of need someone who can talk to record companies, and Danny was that guy, you know? Yeah, there's a particular name for the position that he held that they called, like, a company freak, I think it was? Yeah, company freak, yeah. Because they said that the record companies didn't know what was going on in the street, and Danny did, you know? And they probably weren't willing to go out and check it out, and he loved it, it seems. Although Seymour, Seymour was at CBGB's a lot, you know, with Linda Seymour Stein and Linda Stein, who was the head of Sire Records. Yeah. So, but by the, uh, that that was kind of in the early, in the 60s, Danny was company freak. But by the 70s, you know, he, he, he had a lot of respect and, and uh, not a lot, but he was recognized as being a guy who knew what was going on, you know. What about someone like Hilly Crystal, the uh, operator of uh, CBGB's? Would you would you think of him? Hilly was great. Hilly was great. Hilly was wonderful, and he, he had this um, um, bouncer named Merv who always wore a, a a hard hat, you know. And Merv was wonderful too, you know. Hilly's wife wasn't so wonderful though. She was like, "Turn down the music! Turn it down! You're too loud." And Hilly would be passed out at ten o'clock on the couch in front, you know. Uh, Hilly they, was great. Did, did they uh, did they live upstairs, Hilly and, and uh, his wife? Was I don't know where they lived. <laughs> As I was picturing. No, they didn't live upstairs because upstairs was the Palace Hotel. It was the Bum Hotel, you know. Uh, yeah. 
And uh, one other, uh, I guess, important component, and maybe they're mischaracterized and disrespected often, is the quote, the, the quote groupies, the female groupies. Like, uh, uh, and, and some of them end up being wives and the like. Connie Ramone, you know, she seems like a compelling figure. Uh, Sable Star, you know, did you cross paths with these folks? And Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Connie was, Connie was a nightmare, as, as you can see in the book. Sable was okay, you know. Sable was more L.A., you know, and then she had an affair with uh, Johnny Thunders and then later Richard Hell. Um, but the interesting thing about punk and the whole thing at CBGB's was there was suddenly all these different women who you could model yourself after. There was Tina Weymouth, you know, who was kind of arty and, and stoic, and there was Patti Smith, who was arty and outrageous, and, you know, there, were, there was Debbie, you know, you, you could adopt. The, the suddenly, there was more room for women, too, you know, and more ways to be a woman and define yourself as a woman, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. And cool, you know? Yeah, definitely. Though, you know, the, the status quo at that time and still today even would look at the way that those women were carrying themselves and, and say, you know, they're, they're ne'er-do-wells. They're, they, they are uh, women that have, have no shame, no morals and the like. But I, 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 I would venture to guess that you would say they're pretty strong people and pretty... I, 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 morals FCC legs about morals, you know. <laughs> I mean, they were interesting, and they were they were smart, and they were they were following their gut instincts, and they were, you know, reinventing themselves and re and redefining the culture, which was very very cool, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Again, folks, we're talking to uh, Roderick, aka Legs McNeil. Yeah, no one ever called me. My father named me Roderick, and then he died. And my mom, I didn't even know my name was Roderick until um, I went to the first grade. They called me Eddie after my dad. Uh, I didn't know my name was Roderick, so please don't call me Roderick. I apologize. I hate, that. I hate that name. I apologize. It was listed in the book. I figured it was okay, but, you know. Do you want me to edit it out? Sure. <laughs> sure, I'd love it. <laughs> if I can do it with ease, I will. If not, I'm so, I apologize in advance. But... Uh, uh, you know, the the new book, the prequel, I guess you guys have been working on it for a decade or so, you and Jillian. Yeah, about 15 years, yeah. Uh, you call it a prequel, I guess, because we were talking about how glitter and glam led to punk. Uh, and then, you know, I guess we could even say that goes on to grunge maybe in the 90s. But before all this... You want to you want to focus on how the effects '60s had on that on that chronological chronological you know growth of music in America, I suppose. Yeah, well, I I think the subtitle should be the uncensored oral history of hippie noir. You know, hippie noir. Why do you say hippie noir? Because I you know I always thought these people were into peace, but they were a bunch of thugs. They were just like. Every other band at CBGB's, <laughs> you know, the birds were like, you know, everybody was carrying guns and sh FCC legs. You know, they were they, they were not what the image that we we um, we were told they were. You know, so you're learning a lot of new things. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Now, you weren't yeah. in that scene. You weren't in that scene. So is this more difficult uh, as compared to putting together, 
your your uh, your your book about the punk scene? Yes, yeah, yeah. And we had to go out to L.A. a lot, you know, and and interview people around there, you know, you know. Especially it goes into the whole Manson thing and the whole, you know, the Manson connection and putting the whole Manson story into a rock and roll context, you know, which is where it should be, you know. Why so? Because Charlie was, you know, trying to be a rock star. Or more of a rock god than a rock star. You know, because he wanted all these people to follow him to the desert. And, 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 uh, and live out Armageddon or whatever delusion he had at the moment. So he's a common thread in, in, uh, in 69? Well, a lot of people are. A lot of people are. You know, like uh, like who else? Terry Melcher. He was producing the Birds and and uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders and um, Greg Jacobson and uh, Bobby Beausoleil, who's in love for a moment. And um, you know the the whole um, California scene and. The lesser scene, you know, the the, the blue collar workers, you know, who were who whose families were in camera or lighting or wardrobe or you know the whole the whole Hollywood um, structure of things, you know. And uh, you, you find a seamless transition into you know from the '60s into the '70s music scene, the influences, transformations, and such. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it was Jan and Dean to the Beach Boys and the Beach Boys into the Birds and the Birds into Love and the Love into the Doors, you know. You know, that's that's pretty, you know, with, I'm, I'm just taking, you know, name bands, but there are a lot of other people in there, too, you know. Yeah, Morrison, you mentioned, he, he was a punk for sure. Yeah, oh, yeah. Did you ever cross paths with him? Jim Morrison, no, no. I did Dennis Wilson, though. Yeah? How was that? I was really hungover. I was in L.A. in, I think, 1977. Might even been 78. And I was at Brothers Studio with Jonathan Paley. I don't know why we were there. We, I was really hungover. And I was playing pinball in the uh, in the front room, in the, I guess in the waiting room. And... Um, and Dennis Wilson walked in, and I just uh, uh, pushed the ball back, and the, it drained. It went right down the middle, and Dennis looked at me like, you FCC legs. an idiot, you know, and I was so humiliated. <laughs> so that was my one run-in with Dennis Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great one, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I remember reading an article that you wrote for Vice magazine about a morning of drinking with Norman Mailer. Yeah. So Norman he, was great. Yeah. Norman was wonderful. Norman was fantastic. Norman was one of the most generous guys I've ever met, you know. Man, you've hung out with some cool people, and you continue to, it seems. Uh, I guess either you're, you're somebody that people can't shake off or you're a pretty cool guy. I, w I would think the latter. I probably somebody who people can't shake off. <laughs> <laughs>
So um, we can look forward to 69 anytime, I guess, in the next, what, two to three years, five years, six months? What do you think? Two years. Two years. Two years. Yeah. And um, right now, you know, uh, we're, we're sitting back. Okay, at, you're, the, you're the mathematician. When is the um, 25th anniversary of, of Please Kill Me? Next year, 2021. 2021, right? Okay. It was printed in yeah, 1996. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So yeah, that, 1996, yeah. Yeah. That'd be great, wouldn't it? To do yeah, it then? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good plan. Yeah, cool. And Well, uh, thank you for having me on your show. Oh, pleasure. And I hope I've entertained you and and whatever. You have. You have. Yeah. Oh, well. How how are you how are you dealing with uh the the uh you know, the the apocalypse right now? Well, my life has changed very little because I just get up and work every day, you know. I never leave the house anyway, you know. So <laughs> it's not like I'm missing out. Well, I wish you the best. I, I, I really uh, enjoy talking with you, and uh, I love your work so much. I, I really do, and I look well, forward I, to 69. Oh, well, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Take care of yourself, Legs. You too. Have a good one. Bye.
The Myth of Daedalus and Icarus by Thomas Bullfinch The labyrinth from which Theseus escaped, by means of the clue of Ariadne, was built by Daedalus, a most skillful artificer. It was an edifice with numberless winding passages and turnings opening into one another and seeming to have neither beginning nor end, like the river Meander, which returns on itself and flows now onward, now backward, in its course to the sea. Dadlas built the labyrinth for King Minos, but afterwards lost the favor of the king and was shut up in a tower. He contrived to make his escape from his prison, but could not leave the island by sea, as the king kept strict watch on all vessels, permitting none to sail without being carefully searched. Minos may control the land and sea, said Daedalus, but not the regions of the air. I will try that way. So he set to work to fabricate wings for himself and his young son, Icarus. He wrought feathers together, beginning with the smallest and adding larger, so as to form an increasing surface. The larger ones he secured with thread and the smaller with wax, and gave the whole a gentle curvature like the wings of a bird. Icarus, the boy, stood and looked on, sometimes running to gather up the feathers which the wind had blown away, and then handling the wax and working over with his fingers, by his play impeding his father in his labors. When at last the work was done, the artist, waving his wings, found himself buoyed upward and hung suspended, poising himself in the beaten air. He next equipped his son in the same manner and taught him how to fly, as a bird tempts her young ones from the lofty nest into the air. When all was prepared for flight, he said, Icarus, my son, I charge you to keep at a moderate height, for if you fly too low, the damp will clog your wings, and if you fly too high, the heat will melt them. Keep near me, and you will be safe. While he gave him these instructions and fitted the wings to his shoulders, the face of the father was wet with tears, and his hands trembled. He kissed the boy, not knowing that it was for the last time. Then rising on his wings, he flew off, encouraging him to follow, and looked back from his own flight to see how his son managed his wings. As they flew, the plowman stopped his work to gaze, and the shepherd leaned on his staff and watched them, astonished at the sight, and thinking they were gods who could thus cleave the air. They passed Samos and Delos on the left, and Labynthos on the right, when the boy, exulting in his career, began to leave the guidance of his companion and soar upward as if to reach heaven. The nearness of the blazing sun softened the wax which held the feathers together, and they came off. He fluttered with his arms, but no feathers remained to hold the air. While his mouth uttered cries to his father, it was submerged in the blue waters of the sea, which thenceforth was called by his name. His father cried, Icarus, Icarus, where are you? At last he saw the feathers 
floating on the water, and bitterly lamenting his own arts, he buried the body and called the land Icaria in memory of his child. Daedalus arrived safe in Sicily, where he built a temple to Apollo and hung up his wings, an offering to the gods. Stunning. I will purchase organic elderberry and boil it down into a paste to color my face with nature. And days reveal clear the maze we have all been inside running.
Episode 362 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Mr. Legs McNeil, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, The Velvet Underground, the New York Dolls, The Dictators, The Stooges, The Ramones, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. I should also mention Nico. Until next week, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this one. Thanks for listening. Take care. <laughs>